0: Hi to everybody, my name is Patrick McKenzie, better known as Patio Living on the Internets, and I'm here today in Tokyo with my friend Jonathan Siegel, who also lives in Tokyo. Uh, Jonathan's a multi-time entrepreneur, but I'll let him give his self-introduction. <laughs> Thank you, Patrick. It's a pleasure to be here.
1: I'd say my background is easiest to understand if you really think about me as a techie. I grew up uh, loving anything that had a battery or I could plug it in the wall, took apart everything, and. Tried to put it all back together and it, it really worked. And I remember when I was 12, got my first computer. It was a 286, 12 megahertz. Mm-hmm. Took it apart, put it back together, and it actually worked. And that's back when you have like the big cards in the computer with the like you know 100 little little ICs on the green silicon chips. Mm-hmm. And then after that, I got fascinated and just did everything else that I possibly could on top of the computer. Mm-hmm. Ultimately, learned how to do some software, uh, and then went to school and did more software. And ever since then, I've been tinkering around uh, for fun on the computer, and and I've been rewarded with tons of uh, opportunity from that, uh, business and otherwise. Mm
0: -hmm. Uh, Yeah, I remember, um, I think I met you originally because at the time you owned uh, Earth Class Mail, which is a a, uh, mail forwarding service that I've used to have like a virtual mailbox in the United States for sending stuff to Japan for the last couple of years. But it turns out like I went down the list. It's like, wait, I've used a lot of companies that you bought at the time and you like run five at a time. So how'd this start? So
1: what I do today is really just an evolution of what I've been doing before. So I'll say what I do today. Today, I buy and operate small businesses. Actually, I buy and operate really, really tiny, minuscule businesses, Mm -hmm. and I grow them to become tiny. Mm -hmm. And how I ended up there was... I was building my own products, and really doing that in the mid 2000s time. Mm -hmm. And back then, it was really hard to build stuff. Yeah, you couldn't just go to Amazon and get a server. Mm -hmm. You had to go buy a server Mm -hmm. or lease one for a long commitment. And even when you had the server, you didn't get connectivity, so you'd have to go rent the connectivity, and that meant long-term commitments. Really knowing how much you need ahead of time. Mm -hmm. It was a big effort. So the capital cost to start a business around 2003, 4, five, was quite high. Yep. And if you couple that with very few people knowing how to do a the building and the infrastructure part of bringing a product to life it meant there just weren't a lot of businesses being created.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: And I found myself in a position to have a desire to create products and enough wherewithal and funds to actually do that myself. Mm-hmm. What I didn't realize is that I would have to make about ten of these products just to have one become successful. Mm-hmm. So my hit rate wasn't that good. Yeah. But at least I had a hit rate. Right. And I had a hit in two thousand five in the e-commerce space called RightCart. Mm-hmm. Then a bunch of things that didn't work. But in two thousand six, I had a hit for something called RightSignature. i sorry, RightScale in the cloud computing space. Then mm-hmm. two thousand seven, two thousand eight was RightSignature, and. I kind of thought, well, maybe I'm God's gift to entrepreneuring, because look at all this great stuff that happens when I build stuff.
2: Mm -hmm.
1: And uh, it turns out I was wrong because 2009, nothing worked, 2010, nothing worked. And I was looking at it saying, what's happened? I have more experience and skills and and wherewithal than I've ever had before Mm -hmm. and yet nothing is working. (laughs) And I did the simple math and I looked around and and I, I saw that there were about 10 companies graduating from incubators every day. Mm -hmm. So Y Combinator is a hundred a year. You have tech stars, you have regional incubators. And what that meant was what used to be differentiating, being able to make a company or at least a product and bring it to the market Mm -hmm. was no longer differentiating. There was just too much noise and there was nothing unique about the signal I was creating. So that left me in 2011 thinking, you know, what, what, what am I going to do? I can't do this product thing and I love making technical products. Mm-hmm. I was lamenting to a friend and I had been living in Ireland and, and recently moved to San Francisco mm-hmm. and an Irish uh, gentleman named Owen McCabe had a, a desire to create a company called Intercom. Mm-hmm. And he had a side project called Exceptional, and a very technical product that captured the exceptions for your web applications. Mm-hmm. And... He had asked me if I knew anyone that might help that company get acquired, his side projects, that he could focus on this new thing. Mm -hmm. And as I went into the market and tried to find out what were the buyers for a company that was on the really, really small side of things Mm -hmm. and where the team wouldn't be going with the company... I found out there was no one that would really be a buyer, right. but compared to my own little projects that I had been working on, his project was like way farther along cause mm-hmm. he had real customers and they were paying him money and he was in production and all of my stuff was sort of these fledgling little products that I was working on that weren't really getting traction.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: So it turned out I ended up being the buyer mm-hmm. and it wasn't strategic or thoughtful or in my greater plan for things. It was just something I stumbled into. During our our process of, of buying the company, we came across there was a competitor. The competitor at the time was called Airbrake, to the yeah. exceptional. And we were familiar with all of the, these, at least these two companies. And uh, we remember that Airbrake used to be called Hop Toad.
0: Yep. And it was developed by ThoughtWatch. I had uh, the HopTo gem and two of my Rails projects until selling them. So yeah, yep, but I did too. I was just, just, it was just, the way just, to
1: do it. back It years. was bedrock, yeah. and, and part of it was like a greater change in the way we were building our applications. Before I, when I started programming and doing web work, I actually caught the first .com, and there were things that would run. You'd run an application that would run through your logs, mm-hmm. take all your log files, and you'd actually get these reports from your log files that would show you where your your most the buggy code was, just by what result you know Apache was serving to your end users. Mm-hmm. And when we started to move into more cloud deployment, one of the benefits of that is your, your, your application code can run anywhere. Mm-hmm. But the drawback is, if it's running anywhere, it's kind of hard to get the logs back. Mm-hmm. And when they do come back, sometimes you know, we're a little less worried about the logs. I, in fact, I don't know anyone who really religiously reads their logs anymore, although that
0: was a thing we used to do. Mm-hmm. And Theoretically speaking, I did because it was a legal requirement for HIPAA, I religiously complied with all legal requirements. it's oh. <laughs> <laughs> yeah.
1: yeah. certainly not something anyone wakes up in the morning saying, "I can't wait to look at my logs." Yeah, forty thousand lines. Hmm, gotta follow through there But what did happen is these um, these little error handling y- utilities, these little lightweight applications, were lightweight services. They were just making it easier to get that same information the things that things were critical to us, that were, that things that were uh, causing end user problems and making it visible to us developers that we can fix them before customers really had a bad time. Mm-hmm. And so this hop toad and airbrake and exceptional hoptoad and airbrake being the same thing. As we were looking at exceptional, we found out that Hoptoad toad had actually reached out to the exceptional team to Owen to find out if there was something strategic to do when, Hoptoad had to change its name, and they had to change their name because of a sort of a trademark that claim. Yeah. And so they realized they were gonna have to change their name, and I think they were just considering what greater future for the product there was, and Thoughtbots a very successful consultancy, mm-hmm. um, but not necessarily focused only on that one business of theirs. Mm-hmm. So that's where we enter the picture. And in the immediately after the close of Exceptional, and we got our, our hands around that. We reached out to Thoughtbot and we said, "Hey, you know, we're we're now entering the space, and we know everybody. It's a small community, so we just want to make sure that we're on the radar for you. You know who we are." Mm-hmm. And it came up in that first interaction that they had actually wondered what the future of Airbrake would be. And the month or so after acquiring. Exceptional. We flew out to Boston, I uh, met the team, wonderful people, Chad, Dan, everybody that we met. were just really great people. Mm-hmm. I think we got along well. We saw common vision. The services really did do the exact same thing. Yeah. I mean, there's so, like, many, so many things you can do in exceptional. It really products. was, right. especially at the time when, I don't know, I mean, there were little differences, but it, it was 99% the same product. Mm-hmm. So we figured for getting our hands around one. Maybe we could get our hands around both. And we ended up working out a deal to, to do that business as well. Mm-hmm. And it was amazing how easy in, you know, in a period of three months, I think I, I found what I have now doing for the next seven years. It's just mm-hmm. stumbled into something that I never saw coming. I uh, love it. Super passionate about what I do now. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I see a long-term fit for it in the ecosystem. So mm-hmm. I think I'll be doing it for some time.
0: Cool. So just to give people a little bit of color on what the business model looks like these days, and you start with with one company that you acquired from presumably cash you had on hand from, from running other small pro- projects over the time, and then you rolled that into two companies that were in the same space. And then dot dot, dot you've basically like gone on and acquired a few more companies, from like a bunch in parallel, sell some, buy more, sell some, buy more is the general feeling <laughs> I get.
1: Yeah, so selling is not necessarily part of my strategy in terms of making money mm-hmm. and, and I'll touch on that in a minute mm-hmm. but buying companies for me means that I don't have to go through the process of starting a new business and then waiting three or four years before it starts to warm up yeah and I used to love that really early process mm-hmm. and now maybe it's because I've done it so many times. I probably launched a hundred products personally Mm -hmm. out of my own passion. And I know that 96 of them, it just withered and died. And it's now, it almost feels maybe like a waste of my time if I do that. So I, I split my brain. I say, if I'm going to do something where I'm starting a new product and I need to do it because it's a creative act Mm -hmm. and I still do this today. I, I do things, but I do it because it's a passion inside me to, Creatively do this and, mm-hmm. um, and I think if you're a technical person you can appreciate that when you sit down in front of the keyboard And you start working on an application the mm-hmm. first time you can hit it You can access the website and you can show your, your spouse or your friends or mm-hmm. it's it's really an amazing feeling You yeah. have it on a hosted on a domain name
0: and it starts to feel real Yeah, when you just like claw something out of the ether and this thing never existed before in the world It exists because we. me. It,
1: it's actually it's an amazing feeling. Yep. It's really really amazing and that that i still do to this day mm-hmm. and i say that i do that out of passion and i say that i do it out of passion because it, it allows me to be a bad business person yeah. and then the other side of my life i do things for profit mm-hmm. and for those it's really about discipline and less about the idea or the technology or the creative effort that goes into it yep. i actually think this is really uh, analogous to a lot of people who have a creative outlet in their life i have a friend who's a painter and he would go to Napa for a weekend and do a lot of oil painting, landscape painting. And he's incredible. He said, I don't have a talent for this. And I, I didn't even appreciate how amazing he is when he does this stuff. Mm-hmm. And he went out to Napa and he would spent a weekend. And when he got back, I said, hey, you know, I'd love to see some of the work he did. And he goes, yeah, yeah, you know, they're in my closet. I'm going to finish them off. I'm not, not done with them yet. And he wasn't paid to go out to Napa, and he, he didn't make any money doing it. In fact, he probably lost money, and he spent money all the time in materials. Mm-hmm. But weeks went by, and he sort of didn't continue on with his paintings. He didn't finish them. And, and I never actually, to this day, have seen the work that he, that he made from those paintings. But he seemed to be fine with it. It was fine for him just going through the creative act of mm-hmm. doing that week, and he was just energized from it. And then I ran into my friend later, and he was actually kind of down, and he's rarely a down person. And I said, "Well, what's happening? You know, why are you down?" And he goes, "Oh, I'm working on this commission." I mm-hmm. said, so "What's what's this commission? You know, and if you're an artist, you can be paid to do work for someone. That's their commission." Yeah. And he had been commissioned to paint a landscape at someone's property, and that's where the trouble began because the people that wanted the commission started getting in his work and saying, hey, that building, it actually used to look like this. Can you change it? Mm -hmm. And that car actually needs to be different. Mm -hmm. And next thing he knew, it was no longer enjoyable for him. Mm -hmm. Yes, he was making money in a way that he didn't get from the weekend he spent in Napa doing painting, but he uh, didn't get any enjoyment from it. Mm -hmm. So I think when, when you have a creative outlet, it's really... Important to recognize when you are doing things because you need that creative control and you Mm -hmm. want to have the passion from it versus where you want to create profit and actually make money. And you almost have to turn off part of your brain that brings that creativity and enjoyment in order to make the
0: money. Yep. I remember back when I was still doing consulting, it would be like working on my own projects, which was at times very stimulating, lots of fun. I got to make all the decisions and then. Go work for a client for two weeks, and I love my clients and had some fun working with them. It's like, you know, selling B2B enterprise software. My job for the next two weeks is bidding you out a drip campaign, uh, which should sound passionate and informative about a product that I haven't lived in for the last 10 years and don't consider my last work, but I need to sound like it for, for the purpose of writing emails for them. There's a little bit of creative tension there. Yeah, I think I end up
1: now halfway between the two worlds. Yeah. I get to see passion that's been put into a project that may become the passion might've become exhausted mm-hmm. and they're looking for a new home for that project. Yep. And for me, it's, I actually like to see things now grow and make impact in the people around me mm-hmm. and doing that from a ball that's already starting to roll a bit yep. is a lot easier than if you're sort of pushing something uphill just to get
0: it started, to get that first customer that even says that maybe it's something they'll use. Yep. I remember it took me about, uh, I guess I can't discuss the exact numbers anymore. So I had a point of reminder for a period of years, we actually talked about it, potentially acquiring right that uh, to somebody else. Um, but uh, uh, it took me five years until the business got to like X level or X is some Uh, some meaningful amount. Five years is a very long time, and by the end of five years, I was very, very tired of the business. (laughs) Um, So your job is basically going to folks who are in a situation quite like me and figuring out, okay, if you don't want it anymore, and it's at a point where it's meaningful, I do want it, and I can get it from a point where it is meaningful to meaningful plus plus. Yeah, I mean, I'm lucky in that I think
1: there are very few Outlets for small projects, mm-hmm. I mean, if you, you know, this too, if you want to sell a small business, sometimes it's more work just to package up that small business and create the business plan and the strategic impact and that your competitors list and all the yeah. things that a real buyer yeah. is going to want in the business, mm-hmm. that it, it almost seems like it's more work to sell the thing, mm-hmm. then it might be easier to sell it easily and quickly. Mm-hmm. to a, a buyer that understands everything uh, rather than try and go and um, you know build up a book of business and, and, and do all the things that you might have to do for
0: a mature sale yeah the quote-unquote grown-up world of uh, p firms know what not, and whatnot will probably put more effort into buying and selling a small business than the small business took to get from zero to wherever <laughs> it is and so we did things more or less in the grown-up way when i was selling bingo character an appointment reminder but uh, a lot of work goes into writing a prospectus and to getting you know financial statements ready for five years and then... Have- and,
1: and often those things are not passion areas. Yeah. I mean, if you're a great, if you are a great innovator and you figured out really cool user interfaces and you understood your, pro- your customers well and you really satisfied their needs, recreating financials and financial projections might be so onerous that you just don't even want to do it. Yep. So in that case, if you are unwilling to formalize the business at the point that you have lost some of that momentum to push it forward mm-hmm. it leaves you in that place yep. because well and just taking like 10 steps back if you have a business and maybe if you are in a position where you have a business and you think hey how to what, what's the next step i have a business now what do i do with like it right <laughs> what are the options well um you you can always Generally speaking, you can always shut down your business, but that's probably not going to do you very, very good financially. Mm -hmm. So you might look at, well, maybe you can get someone else to come in and operate your business, but Mm -hmm. you have to be, you have to have a pretty big base of revenue in order to attract someone to come in and run it and be able to afford them. And so then you look at what the other options are. And, you know, if you read the tech press, you see that people are acquired all the time Mm -hmm. and you might wonder like, what are the economics that go in there? Mm And I can, I can share a little Mm -hmm. bit of that. If you have sort of hyper growth, Mm -hmm. which means your business is growing somewhere around like 11% plus every month, then uh, you have something really exceptional, that's Mm -hmm. something that does not happen very often. Mm -hmm. And I mean, it it has to do it for a little bit of time, because if you're going from uh, 10 users to 12 users, that is hyper growth, but it's not very interesting. Mm -hmm. If you can do that when you have a thousand users for a few months. Then that that becomes really a fascinating business mm-hmm. if you can do that then and you're in some mainstream area it's going to be pretty easy for a real buyer to look at that and say hey i can extrapolate out even if you're at a few hundred thousand dollars a year mm-hmm. i can see where that's going to be a million dollar business for a tens of millions of dollars business mm-hmm. and that's going to eventually be really impactful for my really, really big business and I've got deep pockets as a really big business so I can acquire your company. Mm -hmm. Those are sort of phenomenal outcomes when they can happen, but they're also really rare. They're rare because it's hard to create that business and it's hard to have all the other sort of things that you need to checkbox. When you go through that process, mm-hmm. like you need a thought leading team and you need sort of all these key pieces together, know your funnel or understand how you're going to acquire people, show your competitive
0: positioning over time. Mm-hmm. You also might need willingness to join the new business for say like a two or three year lockup. Yeah.
1: yeah. And so that, yeah. but that is sort of like the top way to monetize the business that you've had. If mm-hmm. you can find the right fit and, and you have those growth properties. And then what happens is, sort of, as you can't check as many check boxes, uh, your, your sort of valuation goes lower, mm-hmm. um, as it should, because it, it, it's considered to be less of a return on a business, mm-hmm. and your buying pool starts to dry up. So um, for instance, if you, none of your team wants to go with the business, and you're just sort of selling the, the, the customers and the intellectual property that exists. You cut out immediately a huge part of the buying pool yeah. because most buyers want to see that team in place. Mm-hmm. Conversely, if you don't have the revenue growth, but you're willing to go with the sale, well, again, you you cut out a portion of buyers who want to see revenue and see those returns. Mm-hmm. So now, you know, so describing all these opportunities to monetize your business, you say, well, how do people end up in a position... Where they have a business, but they haven't really thought through the monetization or what they're going to do into the future. And I say, getting into a place where you are sitting on a a fledgling business mm-hmm. is easy to have happen today. and yep. as you've seen yep. and I've seen, sometimes we just start with a weekend hack, mm-hmm. and then we sort of develop it on our off time. Yep. And then the next thing we know, we're sitting on something which kind of feels like it could be something. Yeah, but maybe it's not yet big
0: enough to. Afford all of our attention, or it has some of those other issues. Yeah, I don't even know how many friends of mine kind of like the online software community had a weekend thing and then just plugged away at it consistently for four or five years. And it's like, wait, I woke up in the morning, I've got this thing, I loved it three years ago, I don't love it anymore, but I think it's probably worth like more than my house. Uh (laughs) So I don't want to shut it down because I do like my customers and I don't want to. Have them have a negative outcome, and I don't. I don't want to burn it down because I wouldn't burn my house down either if if I was tired of living in a house. But oh god, uh, then they start talking around and asking about options. Uh, options.
1: Mm-hmm. I mean, it's interesting. I mean, I can speak to both sides. One side is being that that well, today I can talk as the person who wants to buy these businesses because it's accelerating my opportunity to be impactful Uh, but i can also clearly see the other side of getting to the point where uh, i've created a business and uh, no longer want it on my plate and if you 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 would ask before what sort of allowed me to go out and buy exceptional the Mm -hmm. first business that i did and it wasn't because i had a lot of money Mm -hmm. I bought exceptional with primarily seller financing mm-hmm. because to the person who had the business, if I didn't make a payment, let's say, mm-hmm. well, they could always take back the business and they knew the value of
0: it mm-hmm. more than anybody else really. Yep. So so just for uh, color commentary for the folks at home, seller financing is basically if Hypothetically, you have a business that is worth $500,000. Both parties agree it's worth $500,000. Rather than uh, writing them a check for $500,000 and then, or rather, they write you a check for $500,000 and take possession of the business on day one, the buyer says, I'm going to pay you $20,000 a month for the next 25 months, 26 months, 27 months, whatever it is, Uh, and then they take... Uh, possession but not ownership of the business immediately and there's a contract drawn up that says well if you miss your payment um, then negative things happen and the negative things typically we take back possession of the business um, is the long term." short yeah that's, that's absolutely right and
1: the dynamics for the seller mean look let's say let's say we take this example let's say the business is already doing let's say it's a dollar for dollar purchase so <laughs> just keep, keep math easy and let's yeah. say it's doing at $240,000 a year. It's going to make my math easier. So now, uh, let's say we're buying this $240,000 business for Mm -hmm. $240,000. Now, each month, the business would be earning Mm $20,000. But that's $20,000 of revenue. Meaning that's the sum of the receipts that have been earned during that month. Mm -hmm. But some businesses require more effort, some require less, but all businesses require some effort. So that $20,000 that comes in is going to start getting smaller. Mm -hmm. Maybe you have some servers on Amazon that are running Mm -hmm. and that might take away a couple hundred dollars or it could take up thousands of dollars of Mm -hmm. that money. You may not be a programmer yourself. You might have a part-time or a full-time team working on the programming side Mm -hmm. that might cut away another five, maybe another 15,000 depending on how your business is structured. Mm -hmm. You might have support requirements. You might be paying to acquire customers to a marketing or sales channel. Mm -hmm. And you might have rent. All these things start deducting what the end of the day you're left with as the owner. And as that amount keeps getting smaller, the keeping of the business starts to look more and more unattractive. Yeah. So even if you could Take this business that was earning $20,000 of revenue a month, but you might only be extracting a small amount of that revenue for your own personal profit. Mm -hmm. You might very well be willing to sell that for the $240,000 that you would have had in revenue for a year to know that you got every dollar of that in profit instead. And that might come back to you almost in the same way. In this example, it could be this $20,000 a month. But then that's all your money. You don't deduct a penny from it. Mm-hmm. And as you said, that's a house. That's that's a lot of things. Yeah. For a business that, as you keep it, might not actually put that money into your pocket. Right.
0: Folks often ask me, "Most of my business sold at uh, roughly market rate, and uh, roughly market rate in SaaS businesses right now is depends on a lot of factors, but um, let's say three times the the profit of the business a year when you. When you say profit equals both the economic profit plus whatever they want to pay themselves, and somebody says, well, you know, why would you ever sell a business if you could just like run it on autopilot and then take out the money for the next three years and then you still have business running? There's all sorts of reasons. like running a business actually takes time and um, you have no guarantee that the Google gods won't smite you next year or that you know if I had a stroke or something, I would not be the world's most effective um, operator of that business. And, oh yeah! Between like now and three years from now, I'm hoping to do some things that are you know anything other than run that business. Like I want to be done with it, and so I was very happy to get the valuation I got and hand it to someone else. And then after handover day, it's like okay, I don't have to worry about this anymore.
1: Yeah. You no, know, I'm in as much as I'm a buyer today of businesses. I have always been a seller. Mm-hmm. I'm the first person because I love the creative part of building, or I guess I used to love that. Mm-hmm. I. If someone wanted to pay me for any of my businesses, my hands up in the air, Mm -hmm. I'm ready to sell. Yeah. And I remember even when I sold my very first business, it was for pennies compared to what maybe what even, you know, like your, your smallest side project that, that would have sold was probably 10 times what my first business was, but when that sold, I was delighted. Mm -hmm. I was just like, I was out of my mind with happiness because Mm -hmm. someone had validated.
0: Yeah that I could build something. Uh, it's crazy, maybe it's part of the like, I spend too much time working Silicon Valley culture. And like, Everybody's aiming for an exit, get an exit, get an exit. And uh, I don't necessarily know if I connect with that, but like the, yeah, something I, you know, it's not just my little like fun hobby that happens to kick off money, but I created some freestanding thing in the world that has value and it's validated by it. someone who's actually willing to like pay money without me attached to that, wow. It did kind of blow my mind both times. There's really nothing like it, especially when you,
2: you
1: I never would have considered myself a business person. Mm-hmm. That yeah. was not an identity that I resonate with, or mm-hmm. at least never did before. And this idea that I could just tinker around on my computer with this mind stuff, mm-hmm. and then someone else sees it, gets interested enough in it to want to give me, you know, a real, like you say, just to... to to become the owner of it is mm-hmm. uh, very defining. And after that, after that first sale, I became a business person. Yep. Like even if I didn't know it, like the, de facto, everybody else knew it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so when I, so I see the seller's side mm-hmm. of what I do now. And ironically, I'm also a seller for all my businesses yep. and I'm not it's not part of my model. I don't require it to do what I do, mm-hmm. but I have that mandate because if a business is successful, it almost starts leaving my comfort area. So you know, every business is born, grows old, and it perishes. Mm-hmm. It happens to every business and you can see from the age of the business, how it acts. Mm-hmm. So a very young business, can be anything it's like a baby a baby is very flexible a baby can can do anything it can be a violinist it can be a, a gymnast it can really it, it, all potential is ahead mm-hmm. as we get older oh but that baby can't really do anything it's things in the future that they can do but you, yeah the baby can't do you know backflips today but it's not limited Now, if you fast forward, you can look at someone like myself or you, and we're actually laser focused that some of the things we can do, we can do it with just amazing skill, Mm -hmm. but we've lost our flexibility. I'm not going to be a GMS. It's just not in the cards for me. And so the company, grows very much like a human at the very beginning a company really can be anything it's not yet defined what the company has to do and as it gets older and more mature it becomes very rigid in in what it's able to achieve Mm -hmm. and the dynamics change Yep. maybe when i first started building products i loved the creative energy of just building something at that day zero and now i've become a little bit more mature and I'd like to see something go from usable to really impacting in the community and the users and seeing it grow. But what I don't like is that next stage and that next stage usually means your business is starting to grow in headcount in employees. Mm -hmm. Maybe you've got 20, 30, 50 people, Mm -hmm. that type of a business versus one with two, three or 10 people Mm -hmm. has an entirely different feel. And I know what my strengths are. Yeah. And it is not leading teams of even smallish, but teams that are of that size, mm-hmm. of the 30, 40, 50 people, I start not knowing
0: how to, how to help and grow the people around me. Yeah. I think folks who haven't done this before, the biggest step change in, in running any of my businesses was bringing on that first person. That radically changes the character of what you're doing on a day to day basis. Changes the economics of the business substantially. People are the most expensive thing. It's funny how how software people look at SaaS that costs like eighty dollars a month. It's like eighty dollars. I'm month. not giving That's that so much
2: money. <laughs> and
0: then, uh, man, white collar employees and um, the, the cheapest white collar employee that you can uh, that you could actually uh, afford in a company, even if they're doing something like a customer support that for all the cost for that is about four thousand dollars a month, it's it's more than all your SaaS services put together. Yeah, yeah, it's true. Yeah. Uh,
1: and then I would say then the nourishing of that team mm-hmm. becomes immediately the next concern yeah. because I mean, I know you like me, we like to see people thrive around us. Mm-hmm. And that means if it's our business, we have to be instrumental in that. Yeah. And that it's actually a, I mean, it's, I love it at, at a small team, but if the team gets too big, it starts to feel like a burden. Yeah. So rather than coming to it from strength, I come to it from obligation mm-hmm. and the minute that happens I'm the seller. Yeah. And it's not because it's part of my model or plan to, to monetize. Mm-hmm. I love cash flow. I love I love seeing businesses grow with their cash flow. Mm-hmm. But when that team needs more than I can give it, I'm doing a disservice to myself and a disservice to the team. Mm-hmm. And You'll see even with, for instance, Earth Class Mail, I say it graduated, mm-hmm. right? I'm still, a, I, I still get to participate in the ownership, mm-hmm. but I'm no longer the leadership mm-hmm. and, um, and that's fantastic. It, it, it's allowed me to play my role in that, mm-hmm. in that company's story, mm-hmm. but I'm now out of the way
0: because I had nothing more to give. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So switching gears for a second, uh, I used to run, at one time, I had like four businesses that I was running at once, and uh, I feel pulled every which way. Uh, two of them were being actively neglected, and then one of them was being passively neglected at any given time. And then the, the one that was actually my focus on any given time was generally uh, just because of like the cognitive tax of owning things. I, I felt like I was not getting it anywhere close to 100%. Uh, and you run substantially more businesses than me for substantially longer, and they're more complicated. How do you actually do that? Yeah, so this is funny. So um,
1: My wife, who happens to, uh, she's amazing. She's a physician, speaks a lot
0: of languages, Mm -hmm. has eight children. Yeah. And this is the other thing that blew me away about uh, Jonathan when I met him. It's like, wait, five businesses, eight kids. When do you sleep? (laughs) Well, so she she gives me,
1: rightly a hard time she'll say hey you know you 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 start a lot of things but you don't finish them Mm -hmm. and you know the book which eventually we'll talk about is one of them and she says that and I I sort of it hurts because I like to finish things and I realize I start so many things that I have I might have a low completion percentage rate but it still means I get so much done. <laughs> so in, you know, in one way, maybe you're having many, many projects and feeling like you're neglecting some mm-hmm. and you still, I mean, you, I know you've produced so much on, on many levels, inspiring the community and your writing and the businesses and all the work you do is, is really fantastic. So maybe we're just a little bit harsh critics on ourselves just, to start with. There's a little bit of that going on, but yeah. <laughs> and then the other thing I realized is I do like having diff- I like context switching. Mm-hmm. The idea of plugging away at one thing all day every day into the duration is actually uh, it's suffocating for me. Mm-hmm. And giving a wide-ish range of things to do starts to make me feel really uh, engaged. Mm-hmm. And I think where you were headed was, you know, today I have a portfolio of businesses that I get to work with Mm -hmm. and it seems like the magic number is five and that magic number five, maybe it's the days of the week because I do see that I start to get like a weekly meeting with my teams and it mentally fits to do that weekly on the same day. Mm -hmm. It just tends to be the right amount that fits in my mind. Occasionally I'll have a little bit more than that and occasionally have a little less, but it seems to trend towards uh, getting back to those five things. Mm -hmm. I'm also at a stage of my life and career where I try and not make myself critical. Mm -hmm. Not that I'm not important and want to participate. It's that, as you know, running a early young business, Mm -hmm. you have to be available. For random things that happen, you don't have the luxury of having people to cover for you. Yeah, there's a lot of
0: interruptive stuff. Um, customer support emails coming in. Oh, God, the servers just went down. Uh, yep. Random tax agency yep. just sent you a bill. Keep going. <laughs> Keep going.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, they're, uh, they're limitless mm-hmm. in the number of things that will, will show up at 3 a.m. on like a Sunday morning. Yep. So before, I really thrived in that that, that sense of chaos that happened all the time and that I could problem solve nonstop. And now I'm a little bit more aware of the dangers that come with getting put into that position. Mm -hmm. So I'm, I'm able to stay in my strength, which is to have a number of different things to work on very much because I have a great I have great teammates mm-hmm. and those teammates really cover all of those emergency and critical needs so that I can drop in and be
0: contributive in, in the best way for me at, at this stage of my life. Mm-hmm. What do you usually do for your businesses? Is it more of like a product role or do you uh, like work on sales and marketing or I guess it probably depends on which one and what stage it's at?
1: Yeah, mentally I like participating on a lot of the Product and go to market side of things. Mm-hmm. So it would be usual for me to do things like run through the funnel from first becoming aware of a product that we have all the way through a monetization and to nurturing of a customer. And looking at that, you often touch everything from marketing or the way the brand's positioned to how do we do sales if we do sales and how do we ensure that a customer gets onboarded well and what does the product have to do to reflect that. Uh, sometimes it gets into the technology because I am still very technical. Mm-hmm. And and then just hearing from customers where they want the product to go and then trying to um, wrap that back into the product in a really disciplined way so that we can make smart decisions. And those are all my that, that part of the business is my passion. Mm-hmm. Uh, efficiency, optimization, accounting, all that uh, back end stuff is not my strength. Uh, that was
0: actually some of the stuff that I love most in the business. Uh, I, think, I, I think I'm kind of broken, but I really, <laughs> uh, part of me really does like digging into the weeds, huh? random IRS circulars and saying, oh wait, there's, a, there's an optimization I can be here. And that made me pretty good for my current job. Well, we would have been beautiful co-founders then. <laughs> Maybe someday. So switching gears for a second, uh, you uh, wrote a book recently. I did. You want to tell us a little bit about it?
1: Yeah. So, you know, I'm very lucky that I get to do something that I enjoy and I've been able to do things that I've enjoyed for my entire career. And. And in, in case anyone doesn't know, I turned 40 recently. Mm-hmm. And if I started when I was 12, that means we've got like 28 years of um, playing around in technology. Because mm-hmm. that's really what it feels like. It feels like playing around. And I happen to have been rewarded financially for that playing around. But even if I weren't rewarded for it, I would have done the same things. Because mm-hmm. I actually just deeply um, enjoy it. And along the way, I think I, I've taken I've taken probably many traditional paths. I've, I've sort of tried to work and, um, went down the fundraising at one point in my life. And, mm-hmm. and, and, so I've, I've seen a lot of things that people in, in our field probably will see or have seen or are in the midst of seeing. Um, but I've also got a lot of variety in that I've done a lot of these things. Mm-hmm. So when you have that, look, most people are never the operator of a business. Yes. That is a rare thing to be. And if it does happen to you once, that's amazing. That's really fantastic. But you might not see a pattern if you only do it once. Mm-hmm. And I've had this luxury of doing it again and again and again and again and again. Mm-hmm. And because of that, I really do think that there are patterns. Mm-hmm. And as I've seen those patterns, I've gotten the desire to sort of package them up and share them with other other folks. Mm-hmm. The book that I that I have is called The San Francisco Fallacy. And what it focuses on is that from the outside, the way that you build a business and success may not be the same as what actually drives businesses to be successful. Mm-hmm. So a great example is I have to be in San Francisco. I think in our field. Mm-hmm. That's a pretty strong assumption to build a successful tech business. You have to be in San Francisco. Mm -hmm. And looking back at my career, I created a company called right cart. I created it in Santa Barbara, California. Mm -hmm. It's about uh, 300 miles South of San Francisco. It's not a tech center. I sold that business. Mm -hmm. I created another company called right scale in Santa Barbara. Mm -hmm. That company raised $75 million. It was not in San Francisco created another company called Right Signature in Santa Barbara. The theme here is that I wasn't in San Francisco, and yet I was able to really find successes for myself. Even the team that worked on Exceptional and Airbreak and, um, and that first round of businesses when I happened to be in San Francisco, mm-hmm. my entire team came from Ireland because mm-hmm. that's where I had been and we were working together and we've been working together for years. Mm-hmm. So the the purpose and the reason that, that I think you'll enjoy reading the book is that it tells a real story about how to build a business and hopefully dispels some of the assumptions that we make that really are unnecessary and untrue. And I think mm-hmm. it will make creating a business that has an opportunity to thrive much more achievable because you'll, you can see where the reality is from, um, sort of the, from the
0: fiction. Mm-hmm. I like there being kind of a couple of narratives and a couple of scripts for building businesses, because the, the ones that are most covered in the tech press are kind of the, uh, raise investment, get on the rocket ship go, you know, do Pasco do go straight to Uber slash whatever the, the latest, uh, huge successes. And, um, there's much less of a narrative or an established body of work for how do you start running business from the middle of nowhere or how do you acquire a business, which it's not a unicorn, but a pixie. Pixies are nice too. Like (laughs) how does one run pixies? Um, and yeah, I think you're right after doing this four or five times or you've done it close to a hundred times, you definitely stop making the same old mistakes and get to make fun new ones. So love the idea of capturing some of the old mistakes in, in a physical form somewhere so that all the folks out in the audience can make their own mistakes, new, better mistakes faster. Yeah, you know, and I think there's also this, like,
1: this idea, and, and anyone, anyone thinking about having a business should think about what does success mean? Mm-hmm. Like, re- really writing down what success is now, because when you happen to be at that point later, you'll have forgotten what your success was. Yep. And you know, an example would be if we are just talking now and neither of us has a, a business yet, but we have a bunch of ideas and we think, well, gosh, you know, wouldn't it be great if, and we finish that sentence, it mm-hmm. wouldn't be great if might be, wouldn't it be great if we had a hundred people that were using our, our new product? Mm-hmm. No concept of money, just the self-satisfaction of having those people using our product. Yep. Well, fast forward six months, if we happen to have built it and gotten a hundred people to be using the product we probably wouldn't think it's successful. Mm-hmm. We'd probably be thinking, wouldn't it be great if, I don't know, 100 people were paying us to use the product? Mm-hmm. Well, fast forward another six months, we might find ourselves in the position where we're getting those 100 people paying. And every time we, we sort of exceed that previous desire, it, mm-hmm. now, it, it loses some of that ability to make us feel success. So if you don't take that time to write down what success is, then I think you start to become susceptible to other people's idea of success rather than your own. Yeah. And if you read the tech press, the things that I believe get the noise around success are how big of an exit you got. Yeah. And I think it's a it's a horrible outcome because I we well first money does not equal happiness. Mm-hmm. Period. And Secondly, I believe that that press starts to become infectious and it changes the outcome for people who have opportunities. Mm-hmm. And not mm-hmm. only do I buy companies, but I'm also an investor yep. and I'm, I'm an investor in a, in, a, in a lot of businesses. And so I get to see these early stage companies get acquisition offers. Mm-hmm. And this is one of the most frustrating things for me as a entrepreneur and a supporter of these entrepreneurs is to see an early stage business get an offer that would put, let's say hundreds of thousands of dollars, if not millions of dollars into the founder's hands. Mm -hmm. And if a business has started to take investment from venture capital, Mm -hmm. the venture capital is usually aligned to get a billion dollar outcome for that business. And a smaller outcome early on is really not good Mm -hmm. for the venture capital thesis because it doesn't return massive amounts of money to their billion dollar need Mm because they often raise a lot of money. So you look at these two competing interests, you have the entrepreneurs who've created a business and they're having an opportunity to very quickly put real life-changing money into their bank accounts Mm -hmm. versus the the investors who are no longer aligned. And I'm the first one in their investment pool to say, no guys, go for this. Because in my angel investing, I invest for the pe- I invest in the people, not in. I want to see the people have success. I don't have a investment return for other people mm-hmm. for my money. There's no LPs. There's No LP. That's what I'm saying. I don't, yeah. yeah, there's no pressure on me, and so I love the idea that I help to be instrumental in the change in these these young founders' lives. Mm-hmm. And I'm typically out. Other members of the investor pool will either reach out and and demotivate these founders from taking their legs or they'll demotivate themselves mm-hmm. and they'll just look around and they'll just get the sense that they're they're worth more mm-hmm. or that they're going to be embarrassed. This is a common thing. Yeah. They actually feel like if I only take a few hundred thousand dollars off the table, mm-hmm. I'm going to be such a, you know, I, it was just an aqua hire I'm yeah. like, I feel, I feel horrid saying this because I know, you know, like you say, being in San Francisco,
0: it warps your mind at times. That's Everyone is in kind of a red queen's race against everybody else, where it's like, man, if I only sell a company for twenty million dollars, I mean, I'm such a failure.
1: Yeah, you know, I'm like, I'm trying not to say that, like, because it sounds
0: so yeah. horrific to say I, those words. But I, that's what I, you I hear. I this guy three years ago, and his company is worth three hundred million dollars, and and he's being so successful. And then, meanwhile, that guy, if you saw his internal monologue, is probably like, my company is only worth three hundred million dollars Why couldn't I break a billion? You yeah, know, I was so my, close. my my, my C Batchmates, his company's worth like $2 billion. And that guy is going like, I'm not Uber. Life sucks. And Travis is probably going, I am Uber. Life sucks <laughs> <laughs> Well, it's, it, yeah, I know we're laughing,
1: mm. but these Type of thoughts go through entrepreneurs' heads, and it keeps them from taking money off the table. And then you fast forward another 18 months, their window of opportunity disappears. Mm -hmm. They didn't hit their metrics over the coming months, and all of it just evaporates. And I think it's egregious. It's harmful to the ecosystem because these incentives are not being aligned. And so I share in my book, this is one of the stories, which I, I just make it clear as day that uh, you know you you can be proud and it's funny because like everyone in San Francisco will hear me say this and might might say, well how can you be proud of taking a few hundred thousand dollars in an aqua hire mm-hmm. but everybody outside of San Francisco like, oh my God, this is a lottery ticket I've just gotten to get this kind of wealth creation in such a short amount of time and all I have to do is go work for a great company afterwards. Mm-hmm. And And I, I'm really in, I'm at the camp of, yeah, I think it is great that you can take down any amount of money. I mean, you, you, you sell your side project for $5,000, that's $5,000 that you probably had a great time building. You did it for fun. Maybe Mm -hmm. you didn't even realize that the money was there. And so, um, that's a typical fallacy Mm -hmm. that I've enjoyed uh, trying to dispel. And, um, Mm -hmm. uh, and that's the name of the book,
0: San Francisco Francisco fallacy.com. You've got it. Yeah. Uh, awesome. Well, uh, I recommend everyone go out and uh, read a diff, all this stuff sounds interesting to you, uh, hopefully, kind of useful. Uh, we're coming up about, uh, I guess, after editing, probably about an hour on the podcast. So, do you want to uh, get into uh, wrapping things up? Absolutely. Sure. Um, are you in the market for anything if uh, something interesting crosses your desk? So, I am, my door is always open. <laughs>
1: I love to talk to entrepreneurs. I can give clear guidance for what a company might be worth or what areas can be improved or who buyers might be so anybody who has a business or is thinking about a structure of a business and wants to know what their outcomes might look like please reach out to me I'm happy to do that mm-hmm. and how would folks get in touch you? ah so I am a Jonathan at xenon.io and I'll spell that because there's a lot of ambiguity mm-hmm. J-O-N-A-T-H-A-N at X-E-N-O-N Io. That's Jonathan at Zenon.io. Mm-hmm. And I'm happy to take inbound conversations. I do have very specific buying desires. So mm-hmm. if you're hearing this and you have a SaaS business with recurring revenue and you have 80% attainable gross margins and your revenues are not declining, and you want to talk about what you might have as next steps in the business, definitely, definitely give me a ring. Um,
0: but regardless, I'm always happy to talk to people and, and share my thoughts. Mm-hmm. Yep, man. I'm always happy to talk about anything as always. Um, I'm Patrick at Calzumius, K-A-L-Z-U-M-U-S dot com. Or if you have Stripe related things, patio11 at stripe.com. dot com. And uh, yeah, thanks so much for coming on today. Patrick, thank you so much for having me here. And I'm a huge fan of
1: all your work. So this is really nice to be part of it now. Thank you so much. Yeah, thanks so much.